You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the worker, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. James is a book, as I've mentioned several times throughout this series, where he kind of telegraphs where he's going early on in the letter. And for a relatively short letter, it sort of feels like he took a long time getting here. But we're kind of at the culmination of the letter at this point. So he starts off, he gives kind of this table of contents, and then he works his way to where we are. And one of the things that you'll see if you study the book of James is that he's relying a lot on Old Testament structures to sort of show what he's doing. So in some portions, he uses what's called a diatribe, where he kind of introduces this hypothetical person he's talking to. That's a common um, feature of the Old Testament. And where we've, where we've reached now is what sometimes is called the prophetic law case or the prophetic prosecution. So when you read... Um, Old Testament books, especially the minor prophets, but you see this in places in Isaiah and in places in Jeremiah, the prophet is coming forward and is acting almost as a prosecutor, right? God made this covenant with his people and there were terms of this covenant. If they were obedient to him, they would live in the land, they would be pro- you know, prosperous, they would, they would thrive, they would multiply. This is especially seen in the book of Deuteronomy. Really, the whole book of Deuteronomy is this. If they fail to be obedient and they violate the covenant, then God has consequences for them. They'll be cast out of the land. Their women will be barren. Their animals will die. The the crops will not come in. And so the prophets bring forward kind of the the evidence of their uh, disobedience. They come forward and bring this evidence. And they often, in the um, prophetic lawsuit, address those who are guilty. And it's not just the people of Israel. So we see large portions of the book of Isaiah that are addressed to Egypt. They're addressed to Babylon. They're addressed to the Amorites. They're addressed to all these different people groups. So we have to be careful here as we dive into this to recognize that although this letter is written to Christians, this portion that we're going to talk to about is really not addressing Christians. And I think that's an important feature for us to understand. We'll, I'll explain that as we get into it. So in verses one through three, what we see is James sort of brings forward the complainant. He presents who it is that is, or the, the defendant, excuse me. He presents who it is that is the target of this prosecution. And it's the rich, and particularly the rich, rich who have squandered their wealth. In verses four through six, then, he moves to present all his evidence for, to prove that they are what he says they are. And then we'll uh, make some reflection and some application later on uh, from a couple other spots in the Bible. So the first section here is the, the defendants, the rich and their wealth. 
The second section is the uh, evidence of their guilt. And the third section is what does this have to do with us? And how is this something that the Lord is teaching us? So James starts out again, signaling a topic change. He, he begins with this address we talked about last week. Now listen or listen up, pay attention. He's calling the new audience to attention, even though they probably are not reading the letter. He's calling them to attention to signal this difference in his audience. And he identifies those he's talking to by saying, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. We'll see as we go through this. This is, this is a group of people that no offer of repentance is made. There's no hope of salvation. There's no gospel held forth for these people, which is the, the reason why we can be confident. He's not talking to Christians. In, in the New Testament epistles, um, Christians are not given the law without the gospel. In this instance, the people are given the law and no gospel whatsoever. As I said, this is a form of prophetic address. He's addressing people who are not present in the congregation. So it would be like if um, this is not a, a real scenario, but it would be like if the town had done something to offend our church or to cause us a, a trial or a tribulation. And I was to say, listen up, town administrators. I've got something to say to you. I would be saying that for your benefit, not likely because I thought that the town administrators were ever going to actually hear what I'm saying, but to communicate to you something true that is the case with the town administrators. He's not just trying to um, rail against the rich. This is a passage that is designed to encourage the Christians that are reading this by understanding the status of the rich. So we need to listen up, even though this is not talking about Christians. We need to listen up because this has a measure of encouragement for us that we need to understand. This passage is not opposing wealth generally. We've encountered that uh, question a number of times throughout the list, uh, throughout the letter here. Uh, it's, it's really opposing a specific kind of wealth hoarding. So he's not opposing the accumulation of wealth. He's not opposing uh, business or profit or anything along those lines. What he's opposing are those wealthy people who hoard their wealth and refuse to use it in the way that God has commanded in his word that wealth is to be used. So first and foremost, they're not using it to appropriately give God glory. So by any stretch of the imagination, every person in this room is unimaginably wealthy compared to the vast majority of the world. So most, most of the world, I wanna, I wanna say it was something like 1 billion people in the world live on less than $1 a day. We, we can't even conceptualize what it would mean to live on less than $1 a day. And then it's something like 2 million or 2 billion people in the world live on less than $2 billion a day. So 3 billion people in the world live on less than $2 a day. So if this is a condemnation against wealth generally, then we are the targets. But that's not what it's saying. It's these, these people who he's communicating to sort of vicariously through the, the Jews in the dispersion here, the Christian Jews in dispersion, He's railing against them for accumulating wealth, which they then do not use for any meaningful purpose. So not only are they not using it for God's glory, they're not using it for anything. We see here in verse two, it says, your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will testify against you. So that we have this picture of people who have accumulated all this wealth. 
They've stored it up and it's just sitting there. And this would be a particularly striking characteristic, uh, a striking description, because it finishes with these precious metals and it uses the word for rust. It uses the straightforward word for oxidation. The same word we, we use or the same concept we use when we talk about iron rusting. It's a chemical reaction. And part of the reason that gold is so valuable and has this lasting value and always has is it's not subject to oxidation. So right there we see that this is such an extreme statement. These people are not only not using the wealth they've accumulated for God's glory, they're not using it for anything. It's sitting there and it's sitting there so long that the actual laws of physics in this prophetic uh, lawsuit that he's bringing, the actual laws of physics have had to change to show how long that they've been sitting on this wealth. They've wasted their wealth by sitting on it for so long that it's rusting. The gold is rusting. It's, it's an unimaginable scenario. The other words that are used here are relatively straightforward. They all use the same imagery that, that something is sitting in one place for so long that it starts to fall apart. This is a familiar metaphor, right? Je Jesus uses this when he tells us to store up treasures in heaven. And as we've said multiple times, James is Jesus's half-brother. He's using a similar kind of linguistic background. They grew up in the same town. They had the same parents. They probably had the same sort of like proverbial phrases that Mary and Joseph said to them when they were kids. I'm sure if we all thought about it, we could come up with phrases that we could say to our siblings that they would understand that the rest of us wouldn't. This is probably a similar kind of thing. This concept of moths eating clothes and you know, wealth being destroyed, robbers breaking in and stealing, this idea that if we sit on our wealth, whatever it is, however vast or limited it might be, if we sit on it and do nothing with it, something is going to get it. And so we might as well use it for something productive. That's what James is condemning here. So I think there's a principle for us, right? We're not the target of this, but it doesn't mean we can't learn from it. Do we have resources, whether it's our time or our treasures or our talents, do we have resources that we could be using for the glory of God and for the good of others that we're just sitting on? That's kind of a side point, but it's something for us to, to consider here. And the, the ridiculousness of this scenario that this wealth is just sitting in the storehouses until it literally just rots away, in the last days, in the final judgment, that evidence will be used against them to show that they have wasted their lives. Now we have to be careful here when the Bible talks about the last days, it's probably not talking about what we think of as the end times. Now there are lots of different perspectives in the church about what the end times are, when they're coming, how they'll get here. We, we don't want to get bogged down in that. But whatever is meant by the end times when we talk about it, that period of time sort of like right before Jesus comes back, that's not what the Bible is usually referring to when it speaks of the last days. We don't have to turn there, but in the book of Hebrews, it kind of identifies the last days as the time period between the resurrection and when Jesus comes back. So that's what we're talking about. These, these in, uh, in James's target here, they're doing this right now. We shouldn't look at this as some future reality. It's not as though he's saying, you rich people, even when the tribulation is happening, even when Jesus is just about to come back, you're still not going to use your wealth. 
He's saying right here and now, right here and now they're wasting their wealth. That's the, that's the uh, defendant in the law case here, in the lawsuit, is these rich, wealthy individuals who are not among the Christian population, who are wasting their wealth, and we'll see from other things in the letter, probably are using their wealth to actually target and oppress the Christians. So it's, it's not even just that they are not doing anything, but they're actually actively doing negative things with the wealth that God has given them. You remember from last week's sermon that when, when we go to this city or that city and we do make a profit, that's God's providence. So although that was not necessarily talking to the same people, that theme that whatever we have, whether it's a, a good gift or a trial, to go back to chapter one of the letter, whether it's a good gift or a trial, that comes down from the heavenly father of lights who gives good gifts. So not only are these people who have been given this good gift of resources and wealth, squandering it, they're actively using it to oppose God and his work on the planet. Moving on to verse four, we see here that James actually gives us a hint of how it is that they've gained some of their wealth. And so this does have something to say to us about how we pursue wealth. Um, the, the historic Christian tradition in the mainstream has not only not been opposed to the accumulation of wealth when rightly used, but actually has commanded people to recognize that it's a good thing for us to increase our resources and our ability to serve the Lord through the use of our wealth. So we're commanded to not only seek to improve our own financial situation, but also to take steps that helps to improve other people's financial situation. But there are good ways and bad ways to do that. So we see here in verse four, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. Now the, the phrasing here in the original Greek is probably, probably a little bit more ambiguous than that. It's more like the, the wages that you have obtained by fraud is probably a better way to understand it. It doesn't make that much of a difference in the actual scenario because to, uh, to contract an employee to perform a task and then not to pay them is a form of fraud. But it's, it's not so limited to saying, I'm going to give you 50 bucks if you mow my lawn and then just not doing it. That's a part of it, but that's not the exclusive element of this. Probably what we see happening here, and we'll go back a little bit earlier in the book of James to understand it, is there's this wealthy class of probably Jewish people, Jewish non-Christians in the Holy Land. We remember that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, there was persecution and they scattered out into the, the Jewish countryside. So we have a group of dispersed Jewish Christians who don't have homes, they don't have fields, they don't have family contacts, they really don't have anything. So they go out into the countryside and they're trying to scrape together a living. And what they find are these wealthy Jewish landowners who contract them and say, you can come work my field. Or maybe they say, I'll sell you this field for X amount of money and you just work it until you've paid it back and then it becomes yours, right? It's a, it's a form of like indentured servitude to use a, a term that we might be more familiar with. The problem is that these wealthy Christians or these wealthy Jewish um, landowners appear to have been using judicial power to defraud people of their wages and then also of those contracts to transfer the land to their ownership after a certain amount of harvest. 
So turn back just a few pages to James chapter 2 and verse 6. And James gives us a hint of what it is that was going on. So James early on telegraphs this sort of opposition between the, the wealthy and the poor that he, he pulls back to the front here. So James chapter 2, verse 6, he says, You have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him who, to whom you belong? So the persecution was centralized in Jerusalem at this time in Christian history. But we know from other places in both biblical and, and non-biblical sources that there was persecution out around in the rest of the world for Christians. So what seems to be happening here is as these Jews, these Jewish Christians have gone out, not only now are they being defrauded in various ways by these wealthy landowners, but they're being slandered. So even if they wanted to move from place to place, their reputation has been so destroyed that they now can't find work. This is a serious situation for these Christians. It's not like today where, for the most part, in America, there's food insufficiency, but there are programs funded by the government, which is us in the long term, but funded by the government to make sure that if people need food, that they have access to food. These programs aren't perfect and that's beside the point, but those programs exist in many countries in our world. It was not like that back then. If you could not work, if you could not produce a daily wage, it was likely that over time you, would, you and your children would starve to death or you would have to sell yourself into actual slavery to get by. So this is why James speaks so strongly in part of the ridiculousness of these Jewish Christians welcoming these rich people into their congregation and fawning all over them. Because it was those same wealthy people that were destroying their lives. He probably has in mind specifically this sort of form of predatory land purchasing where the rich use legal process to obtain their land and then hire people to work that land and then don't pay them. They're not only getting defrauded that they're probably being charged exorbitant rates for the land. They're probably being charged interest of some sort, which is a violation of the Old Testament law for a Jewish person to charge interest for another Jewish person on a loan. And then not only that, these Christians are doing their best to work hard to earn back their dignity and their land and to be able to provide for their families. And when the time comes for them to collect their daily wage, the landowner just goes, nah, I'm not going to do that. And these poor Jewish Christians have no recourse. They can't go to the courts because they don't have any money or influence. There's no one to appeal to. And so many of them probably just starve to death slowly over time. This is why when we get to the end of this passage, it talks about murdering the righteous one. We'll unpack that when we get there. Furthermore, not only are these rich landowners victimizing and oppressing these poor Jewish Christians, they're actually getting sort of fat off the land. And it's land that's not rightfully theirs. They're living in this life of luxury where they become lazy and fat. And the only way they can sustain themselves is to continue to participate in this corrupt system that they've created. James pictures them as uh, animals being led to the slaughter, right? This, we, we hear about the fattened calf in the prodigal of the, uh, the law or the parable of the prodigal son that he brings forth the fattened calf. And there was this practice that there would be an animal in your flock or your herd that was given more rich food and was not exercised the same way in order to make it sort of the choicest animal for when the party came. 
It was the fattened calf as opposed to any other calf. It tasted better. There was more of it. This is how God's wrath is functioning for these people. It's a little bit shocking, but there are places in the Bible where God's wrath is actually seen to be sort of satisfied by more people's sin. The greater the sinner, the greater the wrath. And, and there's these, this imagery in some of the Old Testament where that's actually sort of seen as a positive thing. That's the image James is using here. They're fattened calves that are being led to the slaughter. And they don't even realize that they're doing it to themselves. Now, the phrase, the righteous one, I think we, we if we read it um, in Greek, this is a singular verb. It's, it gets translated as righteous men or innocent people. I think we tend to read it. We see the righteous one. We automatically assume that it's talking about Jesus, which is why I think a lot of these translations um, make it plural to sort of point us away from that. This is a form of, of generic title. Um, and it's similar to actually to how James is talking about the rich, you rich person. It's literally just you rich. It's using a descriptive word, an adjective as a noun to stand for a whole group of people. So we have the, the rich and we have the righteous and there's this contrast. And so this is also in part how we know that he's not talking to Christians because the righteous one, this generic category called the righteous one, those are the Christians that are being victimized. We'll come back to that uh, towards the end of the sermon here, because even though I don't think this is talking about Jesus directly, we'll see that this does connect us to Christ in persecution. What we see here is a logical outcome of our meditation verse today. James is encouraging his people that he's writing to that the wicked will get what's coming to them. And the sort of converse of that is that the righteous will also get what's coming to them. It's very easy, and it would have been extremely easy for the, these Christians who are being persecuted to feel sorry for themselves, to feel as though God has abandoned them. There's, I don't know off the top of my head which psalm it is. There's a psalm that the entire psalm is a reflection, more or less, on why is it that it seems like good things happen to bad people? We often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? And one of my favorite theologians, R.C. Sproul, said, well, that only happened once, and he volunteered for the job. Right? There are no good people. We're all desperately wicked. But we often see that those who are in Christ, our lives do not seem to be charmed in any way. We suffer persecution, we suffer illness, we suffer setbacks, oftentimes it feels like more than the wicked do. I, I can remember distinct times in my working career where I tried very hard to obtain a promotion or to get a, a position that I thought would advance my family's wealth or would advance my career or I could make more of a difference, whatever the reason was. And oftentimes it was easy enough to see that the reason that I didn't get the position is that I refused to act in an underhanded way. I refused to call in the favors that I may have accumulated and, and preferred to let the promotion be assigned based on the merits of the applicants. 
it can feel, feel very much like doing the right thing is going to get you the wrong outcome. And that's where there's encouragement for us today. Because James is writing to a group of people and he's saying, I know what they're doing to you. I see it. I understand it. But so does God. So does God. And God will do what is just. And this is a payout on the themes of the whole letter. So turn back to the first chapter of James here. I want to unpack that. We've already gone through it, but I want to unpack it in a little bit of a different way for us that shows how James has been planting this seed of they will get what's coming to them and so will you. He's been planting this seed since the very first part of the book. So I'm going to read James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 and then I'm going to jump down to verses 9 through 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then jumping down to verse 9. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. If you were to ask someone what the main, main point of the letter of James was, I think we'd get a variety of, of answers depending on who is answering the question and which part they've studied and what their own personal proclivities are. In my mind, this is the thesis statement. The Christians who are reading this would have breathed a sigh of relief when this was read aloud to them. This is, as the psalmist says, the Lord knowing the ways of the righteous and the ways of the wicked perishing. This is the fulfillment of that. As we come to the close of James's letter, he brings us full circle back to this beginning point. When we're abused and oppressed, it's for our good. When we face trials of various kinds, it is for the testing of our faith, which brings us to perfection and completion. If God is for us, who can be against us? If this wealthy Jewish landowner steals everything I have and forces me into destitute and I starve to death. It is for the testing of my faith and I can count it all joy. I know that it's far easier to say that than it is to do that, but this is the Christian promise for us in this life. That no matter what happens to us, no matter how it comes about, and no matter how difficult and painful it is, it is for our good and subservient to our salvation. It leads to our sanctification and our glorification. And at the same time, in that very first section, James says, the rich man will fade away even as he goes about his business. There is coming a time when the, will, the wicked will get what is coming to them. whether it is in this life and sometimes it is in this life. Sometimes a person's sin catches up with them and they suffer in this life. Oftentimes they don't. 
but they will get what is coming to them. And we can take hope in the fact that although salvation is offered to all, those who refuse to repent will not join us in the congregation of the righteous. They will not stand in the judgment. They will waste away like chaff on the wind. Turn over to our last passage here. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 9, chapter 6, excuse me. And we're going to read from verse 9. Now, there are many different understandings of the book of Revelation, and even within our congregation, there are a variety of views. But one thing I think we can all agree on is that the book of Revelation, whatever it is, it certainly is not less than an encouragement to those who read it. And that includes the people in the first century who this was addressed to. So starting in verse 6 here, Then I heard what sounded like a voice. Oh, that's not the right spot. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So we have a pictured in this vision that John is having. We have these saints who were martyred, who were killed for their faith, and they're, they're seeking out an answer from God as to how long it will be when they will be avenged. Built into this question is a confidence that they will be avenged. There's no question of if and when you choose to avenge us, when will that be? Do you see that confidence? This is the same confidence that we have in Christ Jesus that we will be given a white robe. We will be given the crown of life. That comes from Jesus, and it is promised to his people. So when we find ourselves in the persecution, now I, I don't think that any of us in our lifetime are going to see physical persecution against Christians in the United States. I know there are those that disagree with me on that, but I don't think that that's coming for us in the, in the near future. What I do think is coming for us is political persecution and other forms of societal persecution. We already feel it and see it in many ways. When they come for you and they come for your job or they come for your kid or they come for your home, and they try to use the way that these Jewish, uh, these Jewish landowners were. They try to use the courts to take that away from us because we will not bow to whatever agenda happens to be the spirit of the day. Because we stand on the unchanging word of God, not on whatever pop psychology or pop medicine or pop whatever is out there today. When they come for us, when they get us, we know that we will be given the crown of life. We can take confidence and hope in that. Now, it may not be as dramatic as that. When you're passed over for the promotion, when you have to give up a, uh, a thing that you like because you can't afford it because your, your job is taken from you, we can take hope in that too. What James, as he closes this letter, is doing 
is the same thing he did when he opened this letter. We can have confidence that the Lord is sovereign, that everything he gives us is good and for our good, and that we will not have to suffer these injustices forever. In some ways, we see a similar theme with Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper. Jesus suffered in ways that we won't ever understand. Right? He's God himself, and he never submitted to temptation. That's its own form of suffering. We eventually give in to temptation, usually, if it, if it beats on us long enough. We don't know the full force of temptation because we've never stood up underneath it to the end. Right? There's a relational um, turning away of the father, away from the son in reference to his humanity. Christ takes on our God-forsakenness on the cross. We actually never will fully understand that. Praise be to the Lord. We never will understand what it means for God to fully abandon us, to fully turn us over to the curses of the covenant of works. But Christ did. And just before his, uh, his crucifixion, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, which we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes, Matthew tells us this. He says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after another, surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus had the same confidence in his heavenly Father that we can have. Even though one of his closest disciples, right? The twelve were not only just his followers, they were his friends. In many ways, they were a, a, a surrogate family when his own family had abandoned him. He had the confidence that the Father would do what is right. And it's only in him that we can be the righteous one, right? If the, if the wicked kills the wicked, that's not good, but it's not killing an innocent person. Because we were buried with him in baptism, united with him by faith, we will be raised to life and given the crown that he wears, right? He earned the crown of life that he then shares with his people. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we proclaim his death until he comes, we're proclaiming that union with his death that we have. And by extension, we're proclaiming the resurrection that he had and the resurrection we will share in. 